Good morning, New Hope and Friends. Hey, I uh, I don't know about you, but I am getting a kick out of those current commercials playing right now. You'll probably watch one today if you're home watching football. But they're those uh, commercials where two people are in dispute over something. Uh, who said what and who really did this and who didn't do it? Three that come to mind are um, the two sisters at the Thanksgiving table saying, no, you left the sweet potatoes off the menu. No, you left the sweet potatoes off the menu. And another one is uh, a husband and wife in their SUV. And one is saying, oh, you always leave the sunroof open. No, no, I'm sure you're the one who left the sunroof open. And in the middle of the dispute, somebody throws the red flag, just like they do in the NFL. And out comes a ref with the instant replay box and shows what really happened. Well, last week, John introduced our current uh, sermon series, and it's entitled, I Never Said That. We are in this series looking at things that we may think Jesus said, but Jesus is saying, nope, I never said that. We're going to be examining five cultural sayings in this series that, that we hear quite often, and we even may think that, well, not we don't may think, I think they really do contain a grain of truth in them. But we may even go so far as thinking, oh, this is probably something Jesus would have said, or he would endorse this idea. But in reality, if we take that saying, that mantra, and we kind of parse it out and take a closer look at it, we find that it would lead us pretty far off the path of someone who wants to look like Jesus if we actually follow that mantra. I think Jesus himself shows great restraint because think about it, if he could throw a big screen up in the sky every single day and go, hey, see, told you, I didn't say that. But he doesn't, so we're gonna try to decipher ourselves with the Spirit's help what is true in some of the things we hear today and what really uh, could lead us away from following Jesus the way that we want to. Today's statement that we're examining, which Jesus never said, is this statement. As long as you're happy, that's all that matters. The grain of truth in that statement, which kind of rings true, is the fact, the reason it rings true is that God does care about our emotional well-being. It really does matter to God. If you read scripture, you will find invitations uh, all throughout, invitations from God, invitations uh, from God the Father, invitations through Jesus, and the provision of the Holy Spirit that allows us to experience joy and peace and love, and gladness. It's really clear in Scripture that God desires our shalom, that, that Old Testament concept about well-being and wholeness of person. But if we do an instant replay of what Jesus said, He never said, hey, as long as you're happy, that's all that matters. People say it, I've actually heard those very words. Maybe some of us this morning even would have to confess and think back and go, I think I've even said that 
to somebody that I care deeply about when they're in the midst of trying to make a tough decision. Those words come out of our mouth. Well, as long as you're happy, that's all that matters. Sometimes I've heard it uh, used in a way where person A says it to person B because they don't know what else to say and they're kind of trying to wrap up the conversation and they just kind of throw up their hands and go, well, as long as you're happy, that's all that matters. But is that really true? Does that actually lead someone to a place of happiness? Does following that path to say all that matters is that you're happy, does that actually lead to someone's well-being and wholeness? Well, let's think about that for a little bit. Let's think about what a life built on that, I'm going to call it a mantra, if what a life looks like that's built on that mantra. If happiness is all that really matters, then it totally makes sense to bail when we're not happy. To bail on relationships, bail on a career, bail on a church. Now, I know we're smart enough. We're not dumb. We're, we're smart enough to know that nobody in the world is happy all the time, right? But I think this idea, this mantra today can kind of worm its way into our psyche and we start wondering, yeah, but shouldn't I be happy most of the time? And what does it mean if I'm not? Maybe we even put a, a Christian spin on it and think, well, I must not be in the center of God's will if I'm not feeling pretty good about myself and about life most of the time. And we just kind of begin this, this spiral. A few years ago, there was a book that came out called Sacred Marriage. It's not my favorite book in, the in, in that I just disagreed with the approach the author took. Uh, it's a very hierarchical view of marriage. But I'm going to tell you that the subtitle of that book alone was worth the price of the book. It's still on my shelf. And here's what that title subtitle was. It's called Sacred Marriage. What if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? That was like a slap in the face. Just It was just a jar. Now, if you want a mantra, maybe that's the one we should grab a hold of. But um, and now don't take that to extreme either and think, oh, well, God doesn't want me happy in my marriage. No, no, no. God, Jesus didn't say that one either. God made marriage for us to flourish. But let's talk a little bit about what that means. The reality is that marriage is like any other relationship except on steroids and its ability to refine our lives. Leading, uh, leading into things and hard places that begin to change us and shape us in hard places. The author's point really is that marriage causes us to wrestle with self-centeredness like no other relationship. Marriage causes us to let go of selfishness. And it grows us in our ability to love someone just as they are, to love someone at their worst and at their best, just like Christ loves us. And we begin to see how God's design for marriage is a great environment to shape us and form us into the likeness of Christ. And for those of us who have been married for more than a hot second, we know that that means that there might be long stretches of time 
that hold more opportunities for holiness, more opportunities to become Christ-like than actual moments for happiness. Don't get depressed. Here's the good news. For couples who hang in it and research Christian and non-Christian alike, what research will reveal so often is that if couples will stick through the hard places, and especially if both are committed to being people who want their lives to look like Christ, then the happiness stretches begin to even out with the hard places. And there becomes more of a joy than any of them, either uh, people, either person in the marriage thought possible. If we buy into the thought that my personal happiness is what matters most, marriage isn't the only thing we're going to be tempted to walk away from. We may leave a job prematurely. We may even walk away from a, from a career that we once said was our calling in life. And we walk away sometimes because we just don't feel good emotionally the majority of the time. And so we walk away. There's that, there's that temptation. Caveat here before we go any further, okay? There are times to walk away from a marriage. There's times of abuse. There may be abuse. There may be adultery. There are times to walk away from marriage. There's also times to walk away from a church, from a career in ministry, whether it's burnout or spiritual abuse. So, And there's other reasons too. So that's not this blanket statement. But if we walk away, if we bail because we aren't feeling emotionally happy all the time, then we've been robbed of life-changing opportunities. Other places that we see this mantra starting to damage our society today is, is in relationships with people we disagree with. Today, we cancel people. We shut them out. We shut them down when there are points of disagreement because disagreeing with people or having them disagree with us doesn't feel good. It doesn't leave us happy. And it could be over politics sexual ethics, social issues, theological issues, church issues, because those people don't leave me feeling good about myself or my tribe. But just like the, just like the question of the book on marriage, on sacred marriage, what if those people have been strategically placed in my life? People that God wants to use to sharpen me, to refine me, and infect uh to, and in fact, to make me look more like, like Jesus. If happiness is what matters most, our circle will get smaller and smaller over time. And so will the opportunities that God has to refine us, to look like, like Jesus. The error that occurs between emotional wellness that we're invited into by the Trinity and what we hear in today's lingo that invites us to follow after happiness is that we don't achieve emotional well-being by choosing and or by chasing personal happiness. We come to it in a very different way. Matthew 10, 39 says, if G G Jesus is speaking here, he says, if you cling to, chase after your life, you'll lose it. But if you give it up for my sake, you will find it. I think maybe a, a closer um a closer saying uh, a closer 
sentence to what Jesus is trying to say, or not trying to say, what Jesus says in this passage, rather than, hey, your happiness is all that matters. I think Jesus is saying, hey, if you cling to chase after happiness, you're going to lose it. But if you will come to me for your emotional well-being, that's where you're going to find it. John reminded us last week of these words also from Jesus recorded in Matthew. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. Also in Matthew chapter 5, at the beginning of what we call the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus starts that section off with these words. He says, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the poor, blessed are those who are persecuted. Some of you may have studied this passage before and know that Strong's Concordance and other Bible study tools tell us that that word that Jesus used, uh, that we often translate blessed, can also be translated, guess what, happy. Happy are those who mourn. Happy are those who are treated unfairly. Talk about a clash with today's concept of happiness. To mourn, to be poor, to be treated badly just doesn't ring with, hey, as long as you're happy, that's all that matters. So when we put those words alongside the words of Jesus, we end up encountering a fork in the road, a two roads diverged in a yellow wood type of of path. We go down this path or we go down this path and they lead to very different places. Chasing a concept of happiness defined by our world today, such as chasing after uh, happiness through through wealth or self-gratifying relationships, chasing for happiness through success or, or by finding the people who agree with us and think like us and look like us have not gotten our culture to a place of happy. The tough thing is that the less and less happiness people find, the more and more they grasp for something else to make them happy. They grasp um, at something else. We grasp for something else. We think, okay, yep, that didn't do it. So, but maybe this will. Maybe if I look better, maybe if I... I have all the plastic surgery that's available today. Maybe if I get a new house, maybe if I get a new spouse, maybe if I had more social media influence and social media likes. And to be honest, the chasing after the opportunities are endless and they can go on and on. And yet, as John shared with us last week, America is consistently one of the saddest and most depressed nations on earth. It's not something... According to Happy Planet, America is 108th on the index of happy nations. Are we sure we want to keep chasing happiness? Well, take heart. Because Jesus not only talked about uh, crosses and denying yourself, he also talked about the results of living out that kind of life. He talked about peace and he talked about joy and gladness. In the passage in John, the Gospel of John, that we now call the farewell discourse, Jesus' last weeks and last days on earth, 
he began to talk to his disciples. He'd been teaching them for three years, but now he is getting so focused. Here's what he wants his followers to hang on to and hold on to. And we find uh, in John 14, part of that farewell discourse, Jesus say this in verse 27, he told his disciples, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. This week I read that passage from the message. Here's that first sentence. I'm leaving you well and whole. That's my parting gift to you, wellness and wholeness. So what sounds better? Can we think about that a little bit today? Well and whole, the gift of peace or an ever elusive chasing after happiness that so far doesn't seem to be getting anybody to a place of happiness. Two different paths leading to two different experiences. So we continue to see, look into the words of Jesus and see what he has to say about this. In the very next chapter, John 15, we find uh, today's scripture reading, which Mike read earlier out of John 15. Since we've read it from the NIV, I want to share it from the, from the message. And I want to call attention before I read the 9 through 15 to verse 11, because it's the crux, it's the key verse of this passage. And Jesus says, I've told you these things for a purpose that my joy might be your joy and your joy wholly mature. So with that purpose in mind, let's say, okay, so what did Jesus say? If that's the purpose, if that's how I can find mature joy, if that's how Jesus can pour into me his joy, what is it that he told me to do? So let's look again at 9 through 15 in John 15. He said, I've loved you the way my father has loved me. Make yourselves at home in my love. If you keep my commands, you'll remain intimately at home in my love. That's what I've done, kept my father's commands and made myself at home in his love. Jesus went on, I've told you these things for a purpose, that my joy might be your joy, that your joy wholly mature. This is my command, he went on to say. In other words, here's the path to that. Love one another the way I loved you. This is the very best way to love. Put your life on the line for your friends. You are my friends when you do the things I command you. I no longer call you servants because servants don't understand what their master is thinking and planning. No, I've named you friends because I've let you in on everything I've heard from the Father. The unity and the mutuality that love makes possible between us and the Trinity and us and other people is the path that leads to joy. C.S. Lewis provided a powerful image of the difference between heaven and hell. Trust me, this is gonna tie in. I didn't just jump the tracks. He gives this image of, uh, of visiting a room and there are people hungry, really hungry, starving, emaciated people in this room and But they're sitting around a beautiful table loaded with really good food. And on their arms, he noticed that the end of their arms were uh, about three feet long. There were these forks on one hand and a knife on another. And in that room, the scene was, was chaotic. It was filled with anger and frustration and fighting as people struggled to feed themselves, but they couldn't. 
They could reach the food with those forks, but they, no matter how hard they tried, they could not bring that food to put it in their mouths. And Lewis said, that's a vision of hell. And then he goes to a very similar room in heaven, kind of very same situation. There's this beautiful table and loaded with with wonderful food to have the people again there have the three foot long fork and the three foot long knife attached to their hands. But there was a stark difference in the atmosphere. Rather than chaos and anger and cries of frustration, he heard joy and laughter and good conversation. The difference? In heaven, they weren't trying to feed themselves. They could reach the food with their forks and they did it and they reached across the table and fed somebody else. Lewis concluded that people who spend all of their lives trying to fulfill their own needs, trying to fulfill their selfish desires are already experiencing that type of hell, but on earth. And those who have lived given for others, those who have not a focus inward, but a focus outward, not chasing their own personal happiness, but looking after other people are the people who find that the kingdom of heaven has already begun right here on earth. Following Jesus, remaining in his love, doing life like Jesus. I loved last week, John talked about, uh, about tracing the life of Jesus, just like we trace a letter in the alphabet as children, trace the life of Jesus in the way that we live and letting his flow, enjoying his love, remaining in his love, walking out life like he did, sharing his love with others is the path that leads to fullness of joy. I think we need to get honest and say that many, many things in this life can mess with our emotional, our emotional wellness. Terrible things happen. One thing I appreciated about my homiletics professor, he said one day to the room full of wannabe preachers, he said, a good filter to use for you to know if you're really preaching gospel truth or some feel good mantra is to ask yourself, could I preach this same message, not only here in middle-class America, but could I preach this same message in a developing country, a war-torn country, or behind prison bars. And he said, if you can't preach it in all those places, don't preach it. It's not the gospel. I used to call him the Simon Cowell of professors. He was direct and he suffered no fools. But look at there. Here, 30 years later, I can remember what Dr. Salter taught me as a filter to know if something's gospel truth or just a feel-good mantra. So let's commit to not tell people As long as you're happy, that's all that matters. Does God care about our emotional well-being? Absolutely. And not only here in America, but everywhere that you find a human being living, God cares about that person's emotional wellness and their shalom. Would you tell someone, consider this, would you say that mantra to someone in Gaza? Would you say it to someone in Israel right now or Yugoslavia or North Korea or Haiti? No, that would be ludicrous. It's not any more true right here in our lives than it is in those places either. 
because Jesus never said that. It's not gospel. When hard things hit, and they will, and they do, we get the unwanted diagnosis. We lose our income. We get canceled. Are you going to trust in a half-baked mantra about happiness in those moments? Or are you going to trust in the person who literally walked through hell and back that you might know joy and peace and restoration of relationship? Jesus, Hebrews 12, 2 says, endured the cross for what? He endured the cross for the joy set before him. And what was his joy? Restoring you and I to life. Isn't that beautiful? John Ortberg, uh, Seth actually reminded me this week, he uh, often says in his podcast, you can do life with God or without God. Life's better with God. And for today's purposes, I thought I just would want to put a little twist on that and say that life hits hard with or without Jesus, and it's better with Jesus. The well-being Jesus offers is the gift of his peace, a maturing joy, which is not predicated on happiness or a life that makes us feel good. The joy that Jesus wants to pour into us is predicated on the indwelling eternal love of God, the everlasting love of God, the never failing love of God, and in a tangible sign of discipleship called following Jesus by sharing his love with others. Dave Mathis, a pastor, author, and editor for Desiring God, writes, the surprising testimony of the Gospels is that Jesus was a man of unparalleled and unshakable joy. So hold that for a moment. And then remember with it that Isaiah tells us the suffering servant, Jesus, was a man acquainted, despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Hmm. If Jesus were both, a man of unshakable joy and a man acquainted with grief and sorrow, might it not mean that emotional wholeness involves both of those things. Includes both carrying our cross and deep and abiding joy. Involves both sorrow, pain, and peace and joy. The West has pretty much proved that chasing happiness leads to a lot of places, but happiness is not one of them. Emotional wholeness is not found, or I'm sorry, emotional wholeness is found when we understand that we are deeply forever loved and live our lives out of that place. We can just be at peace. Nothing can shake that. Nothing will ever change. You don't have to chase it down. You don't have to find it in any other source, but knowing that in the deep love of Jesus, we dwell there among the Trinity with peace and with joy, and then out of that can flow to everyone around us. Tomorrow, we observe the life of another man acquainted with sorrow as well as with joy and hope, Martin Luther King Jr. He too was a nonviolent man dedicated to loving God, loving others. He was a man 
who was willing to reach across the table and feed the other person before himself. It cost him his life, cost him his physical life, and yet it gave millions hope that this world could be a different place for all of us. Tomorrow, and I don't know what the weather's going to hold, but tomorrow could I ask in observance of Martin Luther King Jr. Day, could I ask you to do something simple, but I think profound? Offer hope to somebody struggling and then take one even small action to make that hope a reality. Perhaps you give a financial gift in someone's name to a BIPOC organization. If you're not familiar with BIPOC, it's Black, Indigenous, and people of color. Give to an organization. It can be $10. It's a, it's a statement of hope to someone else. Ask someone who looks different than you in some way to just tell you their story, just a piece of it, and then just listen. Listen deeply. One more idea, offer to sit with somebody who's lonely because our world is so full of lonely people right now and offer hope. Reach across the table and feed them. Let's bring hope into a world chasing after happiness and yet failing miserably to find it. Stop chasing, my friends. Stop believing that mantra that all that matters is your happiness. It will never lead you to a place of happiness. Know this, you are seen, you are heard, you are loved, you are held in the arms of God. Let me uh, just make sure that you know that the New Hope staff is praying for you, hoping that this week you'll find encouragement in these words in a deeper place of love and maturity of joy in your life. It's our hope, of course, to be embodied next week together and see you face-to-face and continue to do life with one another. Let me just close this morning with number six, that benediction, and read this over you. Take this in if you could. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Be receivers, my friends, today. God bless.